Good morning. It's so great to be with you here this morning to open God's Word together. As we begin, I have a couple of questions for you. First question, what is God's will for your life? Whoa, looks like he's coming strong out of the gate. Uh, by the way, we're starting with the easy questions. They'll get harder along the way. No, really, how many of you struggle with that question? It's pretty common. I don't know about you, but I, I can't tell you how many times I have cried out to God. Just write it in the sky. I'll do whatever you ask. Just, I need to know what it is you want. I think we all face challenging decisions, right? And we, we want to please God in our choices, don't we? So we ask a good question. What does God want in this? The problem is, I think we make the answer to that question far more complicated than it needs to be. What if there were some verses in the Bible that actually said, for this is God's will for you? Wouldn't that be great? Well, guess what? There are. Um, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, uh, it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Like I said, I think we can overcomplicate this uh, quite a bit. Why don't we just start with the times in Scripture where God says, this is my will. So what does it say that God's will is for us? Sanctification, right? It is God's will. It is God's desire that we be made more and more like Jesus. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans uh, 4.3, no, in uh, Romans 8.29, that God predestined us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless, right? God went so far as to foreordain, like I said, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. That's how important it is to him. There is a process that God is taking us all through. And this process of being made to look and act like Jesus is something we call discipleship. The next question uh, for us this morning is, is this how we view life, right? Do we view life as having a divinely ordained purpose, a purpose we must choose to engage in? At its core, what is discipleship? It is change, right? It's changing from what we are into what God wants us to be. So if discipleship is about changing us, then that means that there is something fundamentally wrong that needs changing, right? The way we do life, the way we view life, our, our priorities, our passions, that must be the starting place when pursuing discipleship. We must acknowledge and even embrace the fact that we need to change. We need to do things differently than we are currently doing them. So step one in understanding discipleship is that it involves choices. Discipleship is something we must actively, intentionally, and consistently choose. Are you ready for this? It's important to see that just because we are a believer in Jesus doesn't mean we are choosing to live like a disciple. We need to ask ourselves if we are taking seriously the call to discipleship that Jesus um, lays before us. As I mentioned in an all-church email recently, do we live out our Christianity like 
a really great hobby, right? Do we treat the invitation to live a holy life with the soberness and seriousness it deserves? My name is Jeff Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at CVCC, and I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. Today, we are starting a short three-week series on impact. Um, we will cover three different areas of ministry, discipleship, families, and missions, and the impact that these three areas have in the Christian life. Today, I will be focusing in on discipleship, and over the next two weeks, Pastor Ken and Pastor Brian will explore these next two areas. There are a lot of facets to what discipleship is all about, but today I want to focus in on three simple ideas. The goal of discipleship, the meaning of discipleship, and the practice of discipleship. Let's begin with the goal of discipleship. The challenge we face in this journey of discipleship is that we are born radically self-centered. This truth is abundantly obvious when we look at babies and toddlers, right? I have my second grandbaby due in just over a week, and I desperately love my two-year-old granddaughter. But it's clear that these little ones view life through the grid of their own needs, and that's natural, right? Is a baby concerned with how much sleep mama got last night? No, and we don't expect them to, right? We are naturally and radically self-centered when we are young. And then we hopefully learn to move away from that radical self-centeredness little by little as we mature. But we continue to carry with us the idea that we are the main characters in our story. As we progress through life, we we process it through our own eyes, through a self-focused lens. I would like to propose that the life of discipleship is a journey. And the goal of that journey is to learn how to take ourselves off of center stage and learn to put God there. All of creation, the the entire history of the universe, past, present, and future, is literally all about God. He is the center, the the, the focus, the, the purpose and goal of everything. We are bit players in an unfolding drama that puts on display how magnificent and glorious God is. That is literally the purpose of life, focusing our attention on and lavishing our praise on the one and only God of the universe. Now, I've said this before, especially in uh, the sermon study guides that uh, we, we create for you, But I firmly believe that the the journey of this life, the the journey of growing as a disciple, is the journey from radical self-centeredness to radical God-centeredness. The way I like to describe this is that the very moment we uh, enter into eternity and are confronted with the unveiled majesty, glory, purity, and holiness of God, we will instantly and forever be radically God-centered. All of our thoughts will revolve around him. We will shrink in relative importance, and rightly so. Does it not follow then that the purpose of this life is training in dying to ourselves, dying to our own desire, dying dying to living our lives for our own purposes and our own agendas, and learning to rightly place God at the center of all that we do? 
That is where he belongs. And when we do that, I promise you, that's when life makes the most sense. But did you get that? Seeing this life as training. John the Baptist gives us a template for how to go about this kind of training. In John 3.30, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. This powerful, life-altering, trajectory-setting statement was made by someone whom Jesus called the greatest man who ever lived up until that point. That, my friends, is, is what I believe being a disciple is all about. But is that the trajectory that we have set for ourselves, decreasing in our own importance, in our own fame, of being in the spotlight so that Jesus can increase? In light of this, we need to learn how to arrange our priorities and our desires around the centrality of God in the intentional, passionate pursuit of Him in the moment by moment. Our perspective is so limited by the blinders we have allowed to be placed on us that we cannot see what the riches of a God-focused life might look like. I read this uh, statement recently. It says, uh, the choice we face is not, as many imagine, between heaven and hell. Rather, the choice is between heaven and this world. Even a fool would exchange hell for heaven, but only the wise will exchange this world for heaven. As we mature in our faith, we naturally begin to wean ourselves off of the allures of this world and set our attention on the world to come. And as we do, we begin to realize that the goal of discipleship is becoming radically God-centered. And as that happens, the fruit of being a disciple start to manifest themselves. We become more patient, more loving, and selfless. We grow in our ability to combat temptation and in our passion for worshiping God. In other words, we become more like Christ. A question I want to let steep in the back of your minds this morning is, is the grid through which we process life self-focused or God-focused? Because that goes directly to the core of what being a disciple is all about. Are we living lives as disciples of Jesus? Or are we only living Jesus adjacent? In order to be able to answer that question, we need to take a look at what a disciple means, according to Jesus. So, with the goal of discipleship in mind, what does it mean to be a disciple? But when I say that, I do not mean what do our 21st century dictionaries and commentaries say a disciple is. The question I'm asking is, what did Jesus mean by the term disciple? What was being a disciple about in the culture of Jesus' day? And does that definition match up with uh, what we think a disciple is all about? And that really is the heart of my message today, is that we may have a definition of disciple in our minds, but unless we understand what Jesus meant by the term, we may be looking at this idea all wrong. The way I want to um, be begin to read the Gospels, or enable us to read the Gospels, and really all the New Testament, is, is through the lens of this question. 
How would the recipients of the writings of the New Testament have heard this teaching? Right? What were their presuppositions about the topics being taught? What had they been taught their entire lives about how to approach God? Asking these kinds of questions will unlock so much more of the precise meaning of what Jesus was saying. And this is something we must do if we're going to have any chance of understanding how to live that out in our own lives. We must strive to understand what the writers and hearers of Scripture believed about what being a disciple is. We must take into account the culture of the day. And that was a Jewish culture and a Jewish understanding of God. We need to see that the Old Testament was not old to them. It was their Bible. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. God had already revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that original promise. Christianity was the completion of Judaism. We need to see how Jewish our Christian faith is. Now here is where I'm going to say something mildly shocking. Are you ready? One truth to get our minds around is that the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written to the Ephesians and the Thessalonians, right, and the Corinthians, right, to, to specific audience who's, who would very clearly understand what was being said to them because they shared the same worldview and, and education. They shared the same situation in life. The recipients of Scripture had the same vocabulary and, and cultural understandings as the authors, right? They shared a common upbringing in Jewish teaching and expectations and lifestyle, a perspective that's foreign to us. So yes, the Bible was written for us, for our encouragement, our benefit, our learning, our edification, but it was not written to us. Therefore, we must ask ourselves what the original recipients would have heard uh, and understood when they read this message. That historical and cultural context is the lens I am hoping to get you passionate about learning and using as you read Scripture. What I'm saying is that there's more to context than just looking at surrounding passages. There is also a, a time and place in which Scripture was written and specific audiences for whom these individual writings were intended. When we take Scripture out of that specific historical and cultural context, we lose not only much of the richness, but also the precision of what these passages actually mean. We need to be asking, is our understanding of being a disciple based on a modern, westernized, anglicized worldview because that's how we view life. That's, way, that's the way we were taught, and that's the worldview we inherited. Yet when we impose our worldview on, uh, on a text that was written halfway around the world, on a in a completely different culture some 2,000 years ago, we have little chance of letting the text speak for itself. And we have little chance of understanding precisely what Jesus said and taught. The challenge before us in our study of God's Word is to do the work, to step outside our own historical and cultural context and transport ourselves back into the time and place, into the, the atmosphere, right, of, the, uh, of those who were the original recipients of the message of Scripture so that we are filtering out as much as possible our own modern presuppositions and anachronistic assumptions in order to get at what God is really communicating. 
And that can be a big challenge. I want to give you an example of how easy it is to take things out of that particular context. But here, we're not just looking at literary context, but also cultural and even geographical context. Let's transport ourselves back to 1611 AD when the King James translation was made. Um, when a person from that time read about Jesus being a tecton, a Greek word for builder, right, they would naturally assume that he was a carpenter. Why? Because what was the primary building material in 1611 England where the King James translation was made? It was wood, right? Thus, the word tecton in the Greek got translated as carpenter in the King James translation. And the King James became the standard for the English-speaking world for centuries. But when we do our homework and we understand that there was very little wood available in first-century Israel, and that most of their construction was done with materials they had an abundance of, namely stone, then we can more properly understand that to the author and the audience, the biblical term tecton would much more likely mean stonemason than it would carpenter. On our church trip to Israel back in the spring, that truth was abundantly clear. There was stone everywhere, right? Sure, there would, there would have been some small aspects of, of woodworking that tecton would engage in back then, you know, like furniture building, that kind of thing. But when we picture Jesus as a, a carpenter, we're, we're not really being precise in what the culture and history and geography would require. Again, there is no way around the fact that we are a product of our environment, and we need to understand that when reading Scripture. This note about Jesus probably being a stonemason rather than a, a carpenter is, is the perfect example of, of how exploring the cultural and historical context can correct elements of folk theology that we have sometimes inherited. Of paramount importance is to, is to acknowledge the fact that Jesus was Jewish. I know that may sound obvious, but the way we read Scripture actually ignores that truth quite a bit. When Jesus came, he came as a Jewish rabbi. He didn't come as an emperor or a, a Greek philosopher or a seminary professor, right? He, he chose to live his life and teach his followers as a Jewish rabbi. Now, I know that may be a new, you know, new information, a new perspective for some of you. When I first came across this idea that Jesus was Jewish, first of all, I, I didn't really understand it, and I, second of all, I don't think I really cared all that much. What difference does that make? The fact that Jesus was Jewish and the culture that he uh, chose to live in and communicate in was Jewish makes all the difference in the world, and it has radically changed how I read scripture. Our current modern westernized anglicized lens for reading scripture sometimes leaves us with a faint reflection of all that is truly there so what does it mean to be a disciple according to the historical and cultural context jesus taught in let's take a look at a passage where jesus called his disciples to see what he meant by this idea Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4 to see how this, this powerful exercise in, in seeking out the historical and cultural context can help us see so much more clearly of what being a disciple truly means. In Matthew 4, 18 through 22, Jesus comes across two sets of brothers, uh, 
Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. And he asks them something pretty astounding. He asks them to quit their jobs and to follow him around the countryside. Right? And the surprising thing is, when Jesus asks this, without hesitation, they left their nets and followed him. Why? Why would they do this? In our culture, can you imagine this? Right? If some random teacher were to walk by our place of business and ask our teenage kids right, to leave everything they had ever known as well as abandon their family and the family business and jump in the back of a cargo van, I think we might have something to say about it. This is a perfect example of why it's crucial to step outside our own time frame right, and cultural presuppositions and learn to stop imposing our culture on uh, the culture of the Bible. Let's read this together. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Pretty familiar passage, right? So here again, Jesus approaches these two sets of brothers and actually has the audacity to ask them to leave their father and the family business and just walk away. Have you ever wondered how they could do that? How how can they could just leave their, 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 their family, abandon their family like that? Wouldn't their father be upset? Wouldn't he feel betrayed? Not only that, but, but the scripture seems to indicate that this was a positive thing. What's really going on? The starting place for this topic is to understand, is to, is to realize that it was the dream of every Jewish young man, every, and every Jewish mother, for their son to be taken on as a disciple, a Talmud, right? A follower and student of a great rabbi. And then maybe even become a rabbi himself one day. David Biven writes, teachers of the Torah were the most esteemed, most respected in Jewish society. The goal of every child was to become a sage, a recognized teacher of the Torah in society. The competition was extreme. Their entire school system was set up to train young men to be able to be recruited by famous traveling rabbis. All they wanted was to be Talmudim. In our modern ethnocentrism, we can sometimes think of ancient systems of education as a bit backwater or primitive. But the educational system of Israel was, was phenomenal. Everything revolved around the, story of the, the study of Torah, what we call the Pentateuch, you know, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Torah was everything to them. So in that educational system of Jesus' day, they were, there were three different levels. Just like in the West, we have elementary education, junior high and high school, and college, right? In the lowest level of their schooling, they called it Beit Sefer. And this was, uh, included both boys and girls, age 6 to 12. This is where they learned to read and write and memorize the Torah. Did you catch that? They would memorize the entire Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, before sixth grade. Um, Beit Sefer means house of the book. Uh, There was a really cool rabbinic tradition that uh, describes what would happen on the first day of Beit Sefer. 
the child would be uh, taken to the synagogue and dropped off, and they would be handed a, a slate um, by their Torah teacher. But the, the slate was not blank. Um, it had all the characters of the Hebrew alphabet, as well as a few important verses from the Torah. But the most important thing on the slate was the phrase, the law will be my calling. That phrase would end up flavoring their entire life. Once the student was handed this slate, it was covered with honey. And the student would then lick the honey off of the slate as a visceral experience, and just reminding them that God's words are as sweet as, uh, as honey on the tongue. What a cool way to start your education, right? After, this, um, this, after they finished this portion of schooling, when they reached the age of 12, the boys would begin to learn a trade, and only the top male students would continue on in education. Uh, most of the boys would be done with their schooling. Uh, the girls would stay at home with the family. They would be done as well. And, and, and the girls would have reached that magical age at around 13 where they would be able to get married and have children. Um, I don't know about you, but my daughter was absolutely not ready to have children at age 13, which means, ladies, that you could be a grandmother at age 26. Um, so anyway, like I said, most boys were done with school by age 13. They would go to work and, um, with, with their father doing whatever trade they had learned. And only the top male students would be allowed to continue their, their study in this next level of school, Beit Midrash, which lasted between ages 13 and 15. And Beit Midrash means house of study. These top students would have been specially selected and invited to join this next level. Here, they would continue to be taught by the local Torah teacher, uh, while continuing to learn the family trade. And then they would strive to memorize the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Testament. Making it to this next level was, was quite a privilege. Uh, back in Beit Sefer, everyone got to participate. But here, you had to show real promise to get to Beit Midrash. Uh, teacher Brad, Brad Gray uses an analogy I really like for this. He says getting selected for Beit Midrash would be like making your high school basketball team. Right? In recreation league today, everyone gets to play. But when you reach high school, only the top players make the team. So at home, uh, these students in Midrash are still helping with the, the work for the family, but their focus is on their studies. Uh, but then at age 15 or 16, uh, when they finally finished Beit Midrash, most of these students would also be done with their schooling. They too would go back to the family business. After this, only the best of the best of the best would make it to this top level. This is where the, the, the most brilliant, promising students would be specially selected by an influential rabbi uh, to uh, enter Beit Talmud. This would be age 15 all the way to perhaps 30. Uh, this would be like recruited to, uh, being recruited to a D1 basketball program. Uh, Beit Talmud means house of disciple. If you thought you had what it took, you would go seek out prominent rabbis and ask if you could follow them. You would ask if you could take their yoke upon you. As we go, we're going to come across uh, familiar phrases that we may not realize are technical terms that had so much more meaning in the Jewish context. Their yoke was each rabbi's 
interpretation. It was their particular take on how to understand God's word. It's what made them stand out from other, other teachers. What did Jesus say in Matthew 11? Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But it was, it was so much more than you as a student simply wanting to know what they know. You wanted to be like them. You wanted to follow and imitate everything they did. And this is where we're starting to get a glimpse of what it means to, to be a disciple. Today, when we think of a, a rabbi-disciple relationship, we might think of it in terms of a, a student-teacher arrangement. And we've all been there, sitting in the classroom, waiting for the bell to ring so you can go outside and play with your friends. But when we picture this, this student-teacher um, relationship, um, we're missing out what kind of relationship Jesus was talking about. When Jesus said, follow me, it wasn't a general call that we might think of today, you know, for someone to consider the claims of Jesus and to pray a prayer. It wasn't uh, an invitation to join a church. It wasn't general at all. It was a technical term used in that day and in that culture to extend a formal invitation to be a part of this rabbi's discipleship group, his Talmudim. You were being invited to enter Beit Talmud. It was a place of extreme honor. And as a Talmud, your, your relationship with your rabbi was so much more than a student-teacher relationship. As a student today, what are you, what are you trying to get from your uh, teacher? Information, right? You want to know what's going to be on the test so you can pass the class and move on to the next grade. But that's not the kind of relationship that a rabbi had with his disciple. As Brad Gray puts it, the goal of a disciple was not to know what the rabbi knew. It, was, it wasn't a transfer of information. The goal was to be who the rabbi was. So when Jesus said, follow me, he was saying, walk after me, mimic me, do what I do. Your goal was to be a carbon copy of your rabbi. You would literally sit at their feet, which again was another technical term, to learn from them and do what they do, say what they say. Right? Again, you didn't want to know what the rabbi knew. You wanted to be who the rabbi was. And that's what it meant when Jesus said, come, follow me. When your rabbi did something, you did it too. When he ate a sandwich, you ate a sandwich. When, you, when he took a nap, you took a nap. When he stubbed his toe, you stubbed your toe. Right? You, you did everything that, that uh, your rabbi did. Why do you think Peter got out of the boat? Was it to show off for the other disciples? Was it to draw attention to himself? No, it was because he wanted to be where his rabbi was, to do what his rabbi was doing. That's the essence of being a Talmud, a disciple. So when we get to a Beit Talmud, we see that very few students would make it this far. They would leave home and travel with their rabbi, emulating everything that he did. These disciples would be called Talmud. That's translated disciple. But you had to be accepted by the rabbi. Why? Because his reputation was made by the caliber of his students. When you were a Talmud of a particular rabbi, your conduct and your holiness reflected on him. Is that something we can relate to? Is that something we think about? How our conduct reflects on our rabbi? 
When Jesus called his disciples Talmudim, that was, again, the highest of honors. But how Jesus interacted with these men when he called them is also fascinating. In John 1, 35-39, there's a strange interchange. At least it's strange until you understand the Jewish background and context. Um, two of John the Baptist's followers decided to follow Jesus. And then Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? And they answered Jesus by saying, where do you live? It seems kind of an odd way to answer Jesus' question. But we see that when a man wanted to be discipled by a rabbi back then, he would begin to follow the rabbi around, at first at a bit of a distance. Eventually, the, the rabbi would take notice and start to ask him a bunch of questions. He was trying to see if this student had what it took to become like him. Eventually, he would ask the man, what are you seeking? The expected response from the potential disciple was, where do you live? If the rabbi replied, that's none of your business, then that meant he was rejecting the man as a Talmud. But if he said, come and see, that meant he was officially accepting him as a disciple. So when we see in John chapter 1, Jesus answered the question, come and you will see. Right? That had to be a moment of rejoicing for them. That was the answer they had always dreamt of hearing. When a rabbi said, follow me, that was the formal invitation to be a part of his group, to become like him. So perhaps we're beginning to see how it is that Peter and Andrew and James and John could leave their nets immediately and follow Jesus. They had hit the lottery. In, in the educational system of the day, right, they had already been passed over. No rabbi had selected them. They were back working with their father. They had reached the end of the line. And after any chance had passed of them making it into Beit Talmud, along comes this esteemed rabbi, a rabbi with authority, and he actually selects them. They didn't seek him out. Of course they would leave immediately. It's what they've been dreaming of their entire lives. And what do you think Zebedee, as a father, thought about this. He could not have been more proud. That was what every Jewish parent dreamt of. His boys were going to be able to follow a rabbi and be a Talmud. Then finally, at the end of the training of a Talmud, if you were still active by the age of 30, if your rabbi had not dismissed you, you would be eligible to be commissioned and ordained to become a rabbi yourself. And you could then call your own Talmudim. And this would be like making the NBA, right? You finally arrived. What age was Jesus when he started his ministry? 30. Was that a coincidence? No. Jesus was a Jew. He was trained as a rabbi. And you could not become a rabbi until around the age of 30. So let's reread our passage in Matthew 4 and see if it looks a little different now. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Does that make a little bit more sense now? They were not abandoning their family, right? Their family had won the lottery. 
They could all tell their friends that their boys were part of a Talmudim. What is significant, though, here is, is who is Jesus calling? Are they the best of the best? No, they were just like everyone else, right? They were back working with their father, so they hadn't made the cut. Is Jesus looking for superstars today? No, this is the same invitation he presents to each and every one of us, to be his Talmudim, his disciples. This is what we are called to be and do as disciples of Jesus. We are called to sit at his feet and learn from him and emulate everything that he does. And the more we do, the more we become like him. It is a calling to be all in. It is not a hobby or a side job. It is something we sacrifice everything for. Discipleship is a life of complete devotion and a commitment to and a life of sacrifice to follow our Messiah, our rabbi. So the question for us is, are you choosing to live as a disciple? Are you sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from and emulating everything that he does? Are you walking in his dust? The call to be a disciple is not just for pastors or theologians. It is for each of us. And that's the challenge I want to leave with you today. Am I truly living as a disciple? Am I completely sold out to living my life for Jesus? Or am I preoccupied with the things of this world? Am I still at the center of my stage of my life? Or have I placed God there in real practical ways? Discipleship is all about becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus who follow and imitate their master and by doing so are transformed into his likeness. Is Jesus your rabbi? Are you willing to get out of the boat to be and do everything that he did? Is God at the center of your stage? Are you radically God-centered? I don't know about you, but I have a long way to go in this. But I'm headed in a good direction. So how have we, as a church here at CBCC, been doing with this pursuit of God and becoming true disciples of Christ? To be honest, we're not there yet, but we're headed in a good direction. In the last couple of years, we've started new adult Bible fellowships and, and groups that, that fill a hole in serving um, our entire population. We have a new young adults group called Abound that serves the, the post-college age group. This group is growing and thriving. There are so many young leaders being trained as disciples in that group. We also have a new ABF for young families in their 20s and 30s called Rooted. This group is so exciting. There is life and growth and community happening here. If you are a young family, somewhere around your 20s or 30s, I invite you to check, check it out. Our other ABFs, you know, according to different ages and stages, are listed in the bulletin, and they're growing and thriving as well. We've also started a new season in our small group ministry. Uh, we are training new leaders, and we have a new system in place for uh, bringing coaches alongside them who will walk with them through this journey of leadership. We're in the middle right now of starting a bunch of new small groups. So if you're not part of a small group, I invite you to jump in 
It's one of the best settings there is for discipleship to happen. The third type of discipleship vehicle we have are Bible studies. We have these on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, mornings and evenings for men and women. Um, and they, they are a great way to dive into God's word deeply with your church family. So like I said, we're headed in a good direction. Where do we want to be? Well, like you've heard Pastor Brian mention, we want to see 100% of our people engaged in one plus one. What that means is worshiping together as the body, you know, right? corporately worshiping together on Sunday mornings, right? And then also involved in, in an additional discipleship vehicle. Uh, we would love to start new Sunday morning classes in groups, um, but we're simply out of space on Sunday mornings. We're full up. That's why joining a small group, uh, groups that meet off campus, is, is such a great option. So where are you connected? Where are you growing? What is the setting at which you are sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from and emulating everything he does? We've seen the goal of discipleship and the meaning of discipleship. Let's close with just a few words on the practice of discipleship. If we take up this call to be a disciple, we are dedicating ourselves to the most serious, sober, and solemn of all causes. The danger of living in our time, a time and culture that requires little of Christians in terms of time and commitment, is that we can easily lose that all-in mentality. But please don't mistake God-centeredness for religion-centeredness. I'm not talking about doubling or tripling the number of hours you spend at church or doing ministry. It's not about doing religious activities in order to, to uh, earn God's favor. I'm talking about shifting our mindset and our, and our priorities to the place where the earthly enticements begin to lose some of their appeal. It's where you begin to, to, to lose interest in the applause of this world as what you long to hear is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Being a disciple is not an easy road. Biblical Christianity knows nothing of easy believism. Being a Christian is not about stamping your passport to heaven or getting your fire insurance. It is not about coming to church to get your needs met. It's about coming to give up all that you have. Jesus did not pull any punches or, or sugarcoat for his followers what they should expect. He says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We need to get past our whitewashed understanding of that idea and realize that in Jesus' day, a cross was not a burden to bear, right? It was an instrument of death. Taking up your cross is not bearing a heavy load. It is not dealing with a difficult boss or, or you know, holding your tongue when you're being criticized. It's not even enduring people who take up two parking spaces. It is a willingness to give up everything, including our lives if need be, for the pursuit of Christ. Jesus doesn't hold back in his challenge for us to count the cost. If we have a warm, fuzzy picture of Jesus in our minds who asks little of us, 
We need to wipe that from our thoughts. If you truly want to follow Jesus, it will cost you everything. Jesus says in Luke 14, 27, that whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus does not want to be number one on a list of ten. He wants to be number one on a list of one. So yes, being a disciple is not an easy road, but it's a necessary road. It's the road we must take to get where God wants us to be. And isn't that where we all truly want to be? It is a hard road, but at the end of the road, it's glorious. The end of the road is filled with joy. It's a place of peace, contentment, fulfillment, and being like Jesus. So what do we do with this? What do we take away? First, we must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. If we are not pursuing Christ with all that we have, it might be because we don't yet know him. There are some who attend church their entire lives and have not yet surrendered to Jesus. Some who have never said yes to the gift of salvation that Jesus offers. If that is you, there is nothing more urgent in this life. That is the most important decision you will ever make. Your eternal destiny is, it, is what is at stake. If you would like to know how to do that, there will be leaders of our church down front under the crosses after the service, and we would love to help walk you through that decision. Others of you may have accepted Christ, but you have not yet chosen to live out what it means to be a disciple. You may have counted the cost and thought, maybe someday I'll get serious about my faith when life is a little less busy or complicated. Or perhaps the allures of this world still have their claws in you. Perhaps you are still squarely perched at the center of your own stage. For you, the message is that being a disciple is so much more than darkening the doors of a church. It is an ongoing choice to deny ourselves and actively seek to be made more like Christ, no matter the cost. It is finally realizing that the promises of this world are empty. This world is not all that there is. We need to be living for the next. What will it take for you to make this commitment? I am challenging you right now to hear this call from Jesus. And this is not my challenge, it's his. What change ought it make in your life, in your heart, in your actions, when you commit to being a Talmud, a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you awed. You are a good God, you are a holy God. You offer us so much and we take it for granted. Lord, we ask you to take your words today and apply it to our hearts, Lord. Help us to grow in our, our passion for seeking after you. Help us to, to understand what it means to be all in. Lord, help, help us to seek after you as our rabbi. Lord, 
We know that we fall short. Uh, but we know that you pick us up and dust us off and allow us to start again. Lord, help us to start again here today, seeking after you with all that we have and all that we are. Lord, be our rabbi. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.